From darkness to light, this is the story we all share as the people of God. He draws us out to draw us in. From the birth of Israel to the church today, God delivers and dwells with his people. He draws us out of our sin, our Egypt, and draws us into his presence, into relationship with him. I love traveling, especially traveling in, in foreign countries. I, I love learning new cultures. I love eating new foods. I love seeing new sights. I love meeting new people. I love it all. But to be honest with you, the thing that I enjoy the most, especially when I travel to foreign countries, is when I come home. You see, even though I enjoy learning those new cultures and experiencing those new things and meeting those new people, the thing that I miss most and the thing I long for most is to be back home because I love home. I, I want to begin this morning by asking you a couple of questions. One, have you ever lived in a foreign country? A foreign country where the beliefs and the customs of the people you lived among were different than your own. Have you ever lived in a foreign country where the beliefs and customs of the people that you lived among were different than your own? Second, when you lived in that foreign country, did you experience oppression? Did the people in that country try to destroy you, try to kill you? This morning, we're beginning a series that's going to take us throughout the summer looking at the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is all about the deliverance of God's people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. But what you need to understand is the book of Exodus doesn't really begin with Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. You see, the book of Exodus is really part two of a five-part book. We call it the Pentateuch. It's the five books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Exodus is part two of that book. The reason we know that is because when we get to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, the very first word in Hebrew, we don't see it in most of our English translations, but the very first word is the word and. And so what we're being told is that Exodus is just simply the continuation of what God has already been showing us is taking place in the lives of his people. And so if we're going to understand Exodus, we've got to step back for a moment and look at what has happened in the book of Genesis. So I want to give you a little bit of a review about Genesis. In, in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17, we see God calling a man. The man was Abraham. And he called this man to, to leave his people, to leave his country, to leave his religion and follow God. And Abraham did that. And God promised Abraham two things if he would follow God and be an obedient to God. God, first of all, promised him a people. God said, if you will do what I tell you to do, I will make you into a great nation. A nation which will bless all the nations of the world. Now, this was pretty miraculous. 
Because at the time, Abraham did not have any children. And yet God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So the first promise was a people. The second promise was for a land. God promised Abraham that he and his descendants would have the land of Canaan. A land flowing with milk and honey. And God reiterated that promise to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then he reiterated that promise to Isaac's son, Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons. Now, Jacob had a dysfunctional family. Ten of his sons sold one of his sons into slavery. Now, some of you kids here are thinking, I'd love to sell my brother or my sister into slavery. No, you wouldn't. Well, maybe so. But that's what, that's what Joseph's brothers did. They sold him into slavery. But what man meant for evil, God used for good. You see, what we need to understand is God is in control even when it doesn't look like God is in control. And God is always going to protect us. And God is always going to use the circumstances in life to fulfill his purposes for us. And God had a purpose even in having Joseph sold into slavery. Because when Joseph ended up in slavery, he ended up second in command of all of Egypt. He was the prime minister of Egypt. And God used this position of power to protect God's people. A great famine came upon the land. And when this great famine came upon the land, Isaac's family ended up, or Jacob's family, ended up coming to Egypt looking for food. And Joseph forgave his brothers and brought his brothers and all of his family to Egypt to live. When he got there, Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, met Joseph's brothers and his father, and he gave them the choice land of all of Egypt, Goshen. It was a beautiful land. It was a prosperous land. And here was Joseph and all of his brothers enjoying the hospitality of Egypt, enjoying the riches of Egypt because Joseph was beloved in all of Egypt. But here's what you need to understand. God did not mean for Israel, God did not mean for Joseph and all of his family to live in Egypt. Egypt was a great place to visit, but it wasn't a great place to live. God had something better for Joseph and his family. But they got comfortable they began to enjoy Egypt, so they stayed there. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says this, In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Over time, the 70 or so people that moved to Egypt Joseph's family had grown to over a couple of million people. And they became a powerful people. And they were enjoying the land. Now you need to understand something about Egypt at this time. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world. They had the most powerful army. 
They had the smartest scientists. They built these massive structures. As a matter of fact, the pyramid at Giza is the only one of the ancient wonders of the world still um, 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 standing today. The pyramid at Giza for 3,800 years was the largest man-made structure built. It was over 50 stories tall. And when Moses and the Israelites were living in Egypt, that pyramid was already there. The Egyptians were intelligent and powerful and strong, but they were also dark. Now, what I mean by that is, is they worshipped a variety of gods, pagan gods, cultic gods. And we're going to see that a little bit later. But here is Israel, God's people who have made themselves at home in Egypt, a foreign land, a land that was not their own. And that takes me to the first truth I want you to learn this morning as we look at Exodus chapter 1 and 2. And that's this, Egypt is not our home. You need to understand that God has something better for each and every one of us. I want you to listen to what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 24. He said, soon I will die, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of the land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Joseph promised, made his brothers promise, when I die and you leave here, I want you to take my bones with you to the land that God has promised to give us. You see, even though Egypt was a good temporary home that protected them during this time of famine, God didn't intend for them to get comfortable in Egypt. And yet, that's exactly what they did. By the time we get to the book of Exodus, the people of Israel had been living in Egypt for at least 200 years. They had multiplied. They had become powerful. They were enjoying the land of Egypt. And they were getting rich off of the land of Egypt. They not only liked Egypt, they loved Egypt. They never forgot the promise that God had a better land prepared for them but they got comfortable in Egypt. And because they got comfortable in Egypt, they never thought about that land that God had prepared for them. They never thought about leaving Egypt because they were, or leaving Egypt because they were comfortable there. And that's like us today. You see, we who are followers of Jesus are told very clearly in Scripture that this world is not our home. We are told that, that this is a temporary dwelling place for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourself cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. In other words, don't get too comfortable down here because this isn't where God wants you to spend eternity. In Hebrews 13, verse 14, it says this, For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home that is yet to come. But here's the problem. Many of us 
And I would dare say most of us have gotten too cozy. We live as if there is no other life but this life. And so we invest our time, we invest our resources in building our lives in this world. We work hard so we can play hard. We take out loans so that we can go on trips and enjoy the pleasures of this world. And we want our kids to enjoy the pleasures and the opportunities of this world. And so we buy bigger and better and more expensive things. Why? Because we have gotten comfortable in Egypt. But here's what happens. You see, when we get too comfortable in Egypt and then we lose the things down here, it crushes us. For instance, I'm 59. I'm approaching that window. I'm not at the window, but I'm approaching that window when I'm looking to that day when, okay, there's coming a day when I will retire. I will be put out to pasture. And so, I want to be prepared for that. I'm putting money in, a, in an account so that one day, when I'm put out to pasture, I can have some food to eat. But here's the deal. You see, many of us, we get so caught up in this world and the things of this world that when we invest in our 401k or our 403b and then the market tanks, it crashes and we lose everything, it crushes us. It destroys us. You know why? Because we are too comfortable in Egypt. And then, God forbid, and yet it happens, we lose somebody we love. Somebody that is close to us. Somebody that is dear to us. And when they die, what happens? It devastates us. It cripples us. We don't even seem to have the power to go on with our life. Why? Here's why. We've gotten too comfortable in Egypt. But you need to understand that Egypt is not our home. God doesn't want us to get comfortable in Egypt because when we do, bad things will happen. Look at me. Listen to me. If you get too comfortable in Egypt, this world, bad things will happen. That's not saying that we can't enjoy our life. We should enjoy the journey. But understand, we don't invest for down here. We invest for up there. We invest for the future. And our future isn't in this world. And so we give our life. We give our efforts. We give our resources. Not in planning a life down here. We give those things in seeking to build a kingdom up there. One that has been promised to us. And one we're going to one day get. But that's not what Israel did. They got comfortable in Egypt. And that's not what we do. We get comfortable in Egypt. And so they got comfortable. They lived in Egypt for a couple of hundred years, enjoying the hospitality, the, the riches, the benefits of, of being a guest in Egypt. But then things changed. And listen, when we get too comfortable in Egypt, things are going to always change. Now listen to what it says in Exodus 1, verses 8 and 10. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. What he had done. 
He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape our country. Don't miss that. A new king came to power that didn't know Joseph, didn't know the things he had done. You see, when we put our hope in this world, this world will always let us down. When we put our hope in this world, this world will always turn against us. There are some of you here today that somehow think that somehow, some way, if we get the right person in the White House, if we get the right person in the State House, if we do the right things here on this earth, we can have this utopia here on earth. And the Bible says it ain't gonna happen. The Bible says things aren't gonna get better. They're going to get worse. And you can sit back and you can say, well, you're just being a Debbie Downer. You're just being negative. No, I'm just reading what Scripture says. Scripture promises us that things aren't going to get better. There is coming a day when everything is going to fall apart. And our best efforts aren't going to make them better. There are some of you here who put your hopes in politics. You know, Reagan got elected. We said, wow, this is great. Man, everything is going to change. And then Clinton got elected, and, and other people said, boy, this is great. Now things are going to change. And then Bush got elected. And then another group said, now things will change. And then Obama got elected. And another group said, now things will change. And then Trump got elected. And a group said, now, finally, things will change. And now there's a group saying, oh, anybody but Trump, and things will change. And we have this idea that if we can get the right person in the White House, then things will change. They won't. They won't. And that doesn't mean that we're not involved in the political process. We've got that privilege as Americans, and we need to take advantage of it. But our hope isn't found in government because government will always let us down and government will always one day turn on us. Political leaders will not deliver us. God never intended for us to put our hope in them. So that brings me to the second truth. And the second truth is this. Egypt will always try to enslave and destroy us. You see, Satan is the ruler of this world. I want you to notice what it says in Exodus 1 verse 11. It says, so the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. It goes on and it says this. It says, they hoped to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build cities. They worked them without mercy. They were ruthless. But the Bible says the more that they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied. We have this idea that, that tribulation and persecution will destroy the church. The opposite is true. When God's people come under persecution, that persecution seems to be like a fertilizer that causes the people of God to grow. And so when slavery didn't work, Pharaoh decided that he was going to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. But his plan was kind of a covert plan. He was going to use the Hebrew midwives. And he told them if, if a Hebrew baby boy is delivered, kill the baby. This is what I believe. It doesn't say it explicitly in Scripture. But what I believe was happening is, is Pharaoh said, 
When a baby boy is born, I want you to immediately kill that baby. You can tell the mom that the baby was stillborn, but kill the baby boys. This is what it says in verses 15 and 16. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shiphrah and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But I want you to listen to the next verse. Listen to what it says. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's order. They allowed the boys to live too. They refused to follow Pharaoh, I want you to listen very carefully. Sometimes while we live in Egypt, sometimes while we live in a world that is controlled by the God of this world, Satan, we need to understand that our only option is civil disobedience. There are times when we must disobey government to obey God. That's what Peter said. Peter said we must obey God rather than than man. And when we are confronted with the choice of whether we're going to be obedient to what God clearly says in His Word or what the government tells us to do, we must always choose to obey God. And that's what Shipra and Pua did. And they are remembered throughout history because they feared God. Let me ask you a question Do you fear God? Do you fear God enough to stand up against popular opinion? Do you fear God enough to stand up against the government if the government tells us to do things that is in clear disobedience to the Word of God? We must obey God rather than men. But then it goes on, and and Pharaoh got everyone in Egypt involved in this process. In verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew baby boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Now, here was Pharaoh's desire. He was going to wipe out Israel by assimilating Israel into Egypt. You see, if they killed all the baby boys, then the Israelite girls would not have anyone to marry but the Egyptians. And the Israelites would become a part of the Egyptian culture. And so that's what they did. Can you imagine living at this time? Can you imagine being a woman and and for the very first time feeling that baby move in your womb, knowing that you're pregnant, experiencing the joy of, of pregnancy, and then immediately the horror of wondering whether you were carrying a boy or a girl. That's the world that they were living in at that time. You see, we need to understand that we are living in a world where Satan is in control. And it may not look like it at times, and and it may seem like we're making strides at times, but God has allowed Satan power in this world. And the Bible says that Satan is the prince. He is the God of this world. And I want you to know that Satan has one aim. And Jesus said it in John 10.10. He said the thief, Satan, comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan's desire is to steal your joy. Satan's desire is to destroy your life. And he'll give you anything to cause that to happen. Because in the end, he will use anything and everything that he gives you to destroy you. That's how it always is with sin 
and with Satan. Now notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. It says about that time. What we need to understand is God's always at work. When it seems like it is the darkest, God is still at work. We may not see him move. We may not be able to hear his voice. But God is behind the scenes working. And that's what was happening. About this time, there were two people from the tribe of Levi, a man and a woman who got married. They had kids. And about this time, the woman got pregnant and she had a baby boy. And for three months, she hid this baby boy. She kept the Egyptians from finding him. But as he grew and he got louder and he got bigger, they knew they couldn't hide him anymore. So they devised a plan. It's the only plan they could think of. They got some pitch and they got some tar and they made a basket out of reeds that was waterproof. And they put the baby in that basket and they put him among the reeds at the bank of the Nile, the place where Pharaoh's daughter bathed and they left him there the sister of the little baby boy hid in the bushes to see what would happen and as was the custom Pharaoh's daughter came and began to bathe and as she began to bathe she heard a cry coming from the reeds and she sent one of her servants to see what it was and the servant brought back that basket that waterproof basket and opened it up and found this little Hebrew baby boy and the Bible says that Pharaoh's daughter felt sorry for him what really happened is she looked at that baby she fell in love with him and she decided to make that baby her own imagine that the Pharaoh had commanded that every Hebrew boy be put to death. And here was Pharaoh's daughter who just adopted a Hebrew baby boy. The little boy's sister came out and said, I see you have a baby there. Do you need someone to nurse the baby? And Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, I need someone. Can you find someone? I will pay them. And so the little boy's sister went and got Moses' mother and she was able to nurse her own child. And she was paid for it. Moms, wouldn't you like that? That's a great plus. That's a great bonus, isn't it? You nurse your baby and you get paid for it. So Moses grew up. And Moses learned all of the things of Egypt. If you read the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, you, you read the book of Acts, you will discover that, that Moses grew in wisdom, all of the wisdom of Egypt. Many people say that Moses was being groomed to be the next pharaoh of Egypt. Imagine that. This Hebrew baby boy grows up to become the next pharaoh of Egypt. But over time, about 40 years later, actually, as Moses grew up and became a man, he decided that he wanted to go out and see his people. And that takes us to the third truth. And here's the third truth. Deliverance doesn't come by our own power. Now listen to what it says in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. And during his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. As, as Moses grew up, 
Moses knew that God had a plan for his life. Let, let me just take a moment right now and say, look at me. No matter who you are, no matter your family of origin, no matter where you've come from, God has a plan for your life. God has a good plan for your life. And here was Moses, a Hebrew, being raised in Pharaoh's home, and yet he knew that the gods of Pharaoh were not his gods. And he knew, even though he didn't understand, he knew that God had something big for him to do. And one day when he went out to see his people, the Hebrews, he saw how they were being treated, his heart broke. And he realized in his mind what God's plan was for him. God's plan was to use Moses to deliver his people. And so Moses said, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do what I can do. And so he looked around, and when no one was watching, he killed that Egyptian who was beating that Hebrew. He hid the body. Why did he hide the, hide the body? He knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew that, that even though he was taking matters in his own hands, what he was doing was wrong. And what we need to understand is when we try to do God's work our way, it's going to always end in failure. Look at me. We cannot accomplish God's will our way. We just can't do it. Another thing we need to understand is that our best efforts will never give us what we want or what we need. Here was Moses giving his best and yet, what did it lead to? It led to Moses having to run for his life, a criminal, hide out in the land of Midian for 40 years. I want you to look at me. Our best efforts will never give us what we need. That's why the prophet Zechariah said, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And that's especially true when it comes to our deliverance. You see, each of us are enslaved in sin. We're born that way. We're born slaves, just like the people who were born in Egypt as Hebrews. And yet some of us have this idea that through our power, our might, our best efforts, we can deliver ourselves. And yet Ephesians chapter 2 says, not by works, so that no one can boast. Our best efforts at delivering ourselves will never bring deliverance. It will only bring more bondage. And so deliverance doesn't come from our hand. So where does it come from? That takes me to the fourth final truth. Deliverance comes when we cry out to God. He, only He, is the one who can deliver us. Now listen to what it says in, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. And notice what it says. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. If you look at the book of Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 2, you will discover that the people never cried out to God until now. They were enslaved. They didn't cry out to God. Their little boys were put to death. They didn't cry out to God oppression 
and bondage and misery was their life. And they didn't cry out to God. But when they did, God heard their cry and answered their prayer. Listen very carefully. God doesn't respond to our need. God responds to our cry. The world is filled with people in need. And God never intervenes and meets them at their need. God responds when we cry out to him and ask for his help. God doesn't force himself on us. God doesn't force his help upon us. But when we cry out to him, he'll respond and he'll deliver. That's what he did here and that's what he does today. Jesus Christ paid the price for each and every one of us. But it's not until we cry out to him that he will respond to that need and save us. The price has been paid for all of us. But the price isn't appropriated to our account until we cry out. So where are you at? I imagine in a, in a room this size, there are, there are all kind of needs here today. Some of you have physical needs. Some of you have financial needs. Some of you have relationship needs. Some of you have emotional needs. And you're going through life. And here, listen to me, some of you are bitter with God because God hasn't intervened and helped you. And yet the problem is you haven't humbled yourself to God and cried out to Him. God doesn't respond to our need. God responds to our cry. And when we cry out asking for help, He helps. And deliverance is on the way. And when it comes to salvation, we've got to cry out. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, cries out to the Lord, will be saved. If God didn't say that, then all of us would be saved. Whether we wanted to or not, God would just save us all. But God doesn't save us because we need it. God saves us because we ask for it. So what about you? Have you humbled yourself? Have you acknowledged your sin, your need, that you need a Savior? Have you asked Jesus to save you, to forgive you, to deliver you? Have you trusted Christ alone to give you eternal life because when you do he will save you he'll deliver you and he'll change your life I can promise you that on the authority of God's word I can promise you that based upon my own personal experience would you bow your head with me close your eyes with your head bow your eyes closed if you're here whatever your need is this morning I want to encourage you Cry out to God. He is the one who can hear, and He is the one that has the power to answer and deliver. Cry out to God. But if you're here this morning and you need to be saved, I want to talk especially to you. God has something better for you than this life. You think this life is great? <laughs> it, it, it may look good now. But I'm here to tell you that everything this life offers eventually enslaves. But oh, God sets free. God sets free. 
But you've got to cry out to him. You've got to acknowledge this. You've got comfortable in Egypt. You've got to acknowledge that you've in bondage to sin. You've got to trust Christ alone to save you. And if you do that, I'm here to tell you, he'll change you completely from the inside out. So if that's what you need to do today, let me encourage you to humble yourself right here, right now. Call upon God by praying this prayer, dear God. I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me. I am a sinner. I've lived life my way. I've been self-centered. I've been selfish. I've been controlled by sin. Forgive me. I don't want to live this way anymore. Jesus, I believe that you came to this earth. You died on the cross. You rose from the grave so that I could be set free from the power of sin and death. Jesus, I'm asking you to save me. I know you're my only hope. Come into my life. Take control. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Jesus, thank you for saving me.